Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anyone here for the first time tonight in person in the room? Welcome, new folks. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome anybody joining us for the first time on Zoom. We have a hybrid community. Uh, half of the community is at home, the other half here. Um, I like to begin class by asking you to talk to each other. Sometimes I come up with some kind of topic. I don't really have a topic tonight. Um, but the intention is a core part of Buddhism is developing community. And it's so hard to develop community when you come and meditate in silence and listen to a talk and then leave. So I, every week I try to get you to talk to each other. So you start to meet more people if you come regularly. Uh, my encouragement is talk to somebody in the room that you don't know yet. Uh, at home, I put you in breakout group, groups on Zoom and it's random and maybe you end up with the same people all the time. I don't know, but it just randomly throws you into small groups. Um, I don't have a topic tonight, but turn towards somebody or a couple people, groups of maybe two or three, uh, and just check in. Like, how's it going today? You know, just sort of like what's happening in you? How are you feeling? Uh, a a check-in you know, my name is, and this is, you know, like today sucks. I'm suffering or like pretty good doing well. So just kind of introduce yourselves. Welcome back. Again, my hope is that if you want to, this is a place where you will be able to develop some community and, um, my sense as a meditation teacher, I've been a meditation teacher for a long time, and I've been teaching this group here on Monday nights for almost 18 years, and um, studied with a lot of meditation teachers and done my own sort of spiritual tourism around different traditions and communities. And my own perspective that I have uh, come up with is that a teacher's job is to make themselves uh, unnecessary useless. And um, that really kind of, I see a core part of, you know, certainly give you some instructions in meditation and teachings of the Buddha, but really to introduce you to each other, to hold that place in the community that organizes the event so that you connect with each other and you support each other and you um, become independent rather than dependent. And there's certainly a lot of spiritual traditions that are looking to create dependence and looking to kind of uh, have you worship the guru or need the teacher or um, that kind of thing. Buddhism, I think the Buddha's intention was, let me teach you how to train your mind and then you won't need me at all because you'll know how to train your mind. But you will continue to need community and to connect with each other and to support and encourage and challenge and learn to fight with each other. I'm a, I'm a fan of you know, uh, our mindfulness, our spiritual practice, also including the conflicts and the difficulties of existence rather than this fake spiritual community where we get together and pretend like we're nice <laughs> all the time. Um, and, you know, hopefully you're nice and kind, you know, most of the time. But of course, we all get, you know, we have our 
things that, that annoy us and those triggers and those you know things that that are challenging and we uh how do we navigate that and we do that in relationship and i i think all of buddhism is relational even you know we we try to sit it's we sit silently there's a lot of it what we do that doesn't look very relational but we're relating to our own emotions we're relating to our own thoughts and feelings and sensations this internal relationship that then turns into how do i listen how do I talk? How do I, the more we can connect with our own difficult emotions in meditation and pleasant, joyous experiences that also happen, the more we're able to translate that into how do we show up for each other. And so much, I think all of Buddhism is about, uh, it's all about ending suffering, but uh, it's about ending suffering in all aspects of our lives, not just when we're sitting silently, in in relate in how we speak how we listen how we show up in our intimate relationships how we show up in all areas of our life so that's you know why i'm always like talk to each other meet each other annoy each other forgive each other for being annoying so much of what we're doing so we'll have a period of meditation and then we'll um, do something talk about something after that so find a way to sit that's upright, that's relaxed, that's not too, uh, um, not too strict of a posture, but a relaxed posture. Don't be rigid, don't be stiff, don't, don't stop breathing. Just let your body relax into the upright posture. Let your eyes fall closed gently and begin with setting the intention to be friendly to your experience to be kind to be patient to be tolerant of the unpleasant sensations emotions thoughts that will come of the pleasant sensations emotions thoughts all of it and then i invite you to spend the first I don't know, five to 10 minutes of our meditation, giving your full attention to your breath, letting the thoughts be in the background. The Buddha's instructions were straightforward and simple. He said something like breathing in, know that you're breathing in, breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Mindfulness of the breath gives us the opportunity to ignore our thoughts for a little while and give our full attention to the body breathing. We don't have to stop our minds from thinking. We just have to stop paying attention to what the mind is thinking about. Give our attention to the breath over and over. Return as many times as you need to. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out.
Remember to be as friendly, as kind, as tolerant of your experience as you can. You find yourself lost in thought, just acknowledge it thinking, it's just what the mind does. And come back to the breath. Disengage the awareness of the contents of the thought, re-engage awareness with the sensations of the breath over and over.
having established present time awareness with the narrow focus of the sensations of the breath, begin to expand. The invitation is to become more inclusive of your whole body, of your whole being. What are you feeling in your arms and legs, hands and feet, in the trunk of the body, the posture itself, the contact with the seat you're on? Investigating and identifying what Experiences are perceived as pleasant. What experiences are felt, perceived as unpleasant. How much of the experience in the body and the heart and mind are neutral? neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Rather than ignoring the mind, include the mind. Give your attention to what your brain is up to, the plans, the memories, hope, fear, worries, fantasies. Observe the mind. Know the mind like you know the breath thoughts arising and passing Just like physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, also have a feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral.
investigating and identifying what we're experiencing and how it feels. Which leads to the intervention that mindfulness is of learning to bring more compassion to the unpleasant feelings. Friendliness, tolerance, mercy, kindness towards our own pain.
more we pay attention, the more we wake up to the constantly changing reality of sensation and emotion and thoughts arising and passing. We see directly how we try to control clinging to the pleasant, craving for the pleasant, resisting the unpleasant. Much of the Buddha's awakening was learning to accept this moment just as it is. Seeing how our suffering is an extra layer that we create when we cling or resist what's happening. In some ways it's teaching us to let go. To allow the impermanent reality to be just as it is right now. These thoughts and emotions and sensations whether pleasant or unpleasant.
So I have no um, planned topic for tonight and would like to uh, just talk with you about whatever might be interesting for you. So reflect for a moment on questions you might have around meditation practice, this form of Theravadan inspired Buddhist meditation practice. Um, areas of uh, teachings, the Buddha's teachings, we call it the Dharma, the teachings of the, the Buddha. Topics that you're curious about or want to know more about or confused about. Anything um, that you'd like to ask me or topics you'd like to hear me reflect on. Uh, if you're at home and you'd like to ask a question, you can raise your hand in the, I think it's in the reactions down at the bottom of the screen. Uh, if you're in the room, you can just raise your hand, please. Um, I was just kind of reflecting on, I remember being in a one-on-one -on -one retreat. You know, and it's like, um, I was reflecting on like the same mind, like the same mind that just can just be so painful and suffer and full of fear and anxiety and resistance and um, there's also like the same thing that like I found myself going over man it's the same one that's creative and, and loves and like sees the world with wonder and it's like this like duality that's like you know I think that this practice reveals and I don't know I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit or sure I like it um could you hear at home i'll, I'll try to uh, paraphrase uh he was saying um last fall we were on retreat and we met individually we call it a one-on-one -on -one interview sometime during this seven-day silent retreat we sit and i take 15 minutes with each person 20 minutes and talk to them about their meditation and and saying that um you know, reflecting on how it's the same mind that, and maybe I'm reading a little, it's the same mind that kind of in retreat can get into these either states of like insights and wisdom or can be creating a lot of suffering for us in the, in the silence and deprivation of uh, no entertainment or <laughs> engagement on retreat. Um, but it's the same mind that, and I, I love this as a something to reflect on, this dilemma that we have as humans and you know what comes to mind for me is that um, inside all of us you know the human condition is one of potential for incredible wisdom our own mind can be trained to see clearly reality and respond wisely non-attachment and compassion and love and forgiveness and all of those wise mind states we experience with this same mind that also craves pleasure and hates pain and is self-centered most of the time and fear-based, the, the ignorance of the human condition uh, coexists with the potential wisdom of the human condition. And then I feel like there's this sort of developmental process. I don't know about you, but when I came to meditation, uh, it was almost all ignorance. 
some of you come to meditation and you already have some wisdom <laughs> you already have some uh, some wisdom you and you know and you're kind of seeking meditation to increase your wisdom i have this sort of extreme experience of coming from a place where i had zero wisdom <laughs> when i started meditating i just had ignorance and i just got to turn towards my mind and see greed hatred and delusion and there was no kindness and there was no forgiveness and there was no friendliness in there yet it just wasn't in there yet i was just just my traumatized drug addicted mind that i was like sitting meditating and being like fuck <laughs> fuck <laughs> it was just a fuck parade in my brain and then developmentally over the months and years of recovery and meditation and growing up some and all of that and then starting to see oh there's both it used to be primarily ignorance and now actually there's some wise thoughts and and like you're saying there's creativity and uh you know poetry and you know music and art and you know uh humor there's all of this like really interesting uh potential of the mind and not you know not just spiritual wisdom but also just like positive creative abilities and also just friendliness and and i i, I put a lot of value on humor too and just like being kind and funny and being able to laugh at ourselves and laugh with each other and at each other and at the world the ludicrous uh situation we're in on this planet and if we take it all you know too seriously it's like it's unbearable and the mind uh you know what perspective what, what are we looking for what what part of the mind um there's this book title you've maybe heard me say this before i've never read the book but i like the title a lot of books that i never read but i like the titles and it was a tibetan tradition teacher and the book title was called turning the mind into an ally and it was his perspective of like so much of what we're doing in buddhist meditation is coming from the place of the first noble truth is true the first noble truth of the reality of suffering and human ignorance where you know we're born into this state of we don't understand the impermanent nature of things and know how to be non-attached we're we don't you know that's that's counter to our survival instinct so it's you know from a buddhist perspective we call that ignorance but after meditating we start to develop wisdom non-attachment hating pain normal but it's an ignorant response to pain because it makes it worse developing compassion wisdom the wisdom of responding wisely and appropriately to pain and that after the years of practice training your mind maybe it's decades it takes a long time it's not a quick fix you start to see oh i have this ability to there's what there's i have a wisdom mind the mind sometimes actually gives me really good advice it has become an ally and it says you know rather than clinging to this resentment you should forgive not for them so that you don't have to suffer about it you should let go is your mind telling you to let go yet eventually it will 
you train your mind and then your mind starts saying, you know what, let go. This isn't worth suffering about. Nothing's worth suffering about. And you start to internalize the Dharma. But that same mind, you know, and I can speak from my own experience, even, you know, decades into practice, will say, you know what? You should get revenge. Don't let go. Fuck that Buddhist bullshit. Let's create some Maltov cocktails. <laughs> and then, you know, but having enough awareness to be like, that's terrible advice, my mind is. <laughs> There's a wisdom mind that sometimes is telling me to let go and have compassion and to forgive. And this other, you know, what in Buddhism we call Mara. Mara is, is what the Buddha, Siddhartha, the historical Buddha, referred to that part of his mind that gives bad advice that encourages us to suffer and to react unskillfully to the world with clinging, with aversion, with taking it all personally, with wanting revenge, with all of that, you know, suffering about the state of the world. He called that Mara, that part of the mind that gives you bad, that's ignorant, gives you bad advice. And, you know, part of your question is it's the same mind. Mara coexists with the Buddha, the, the awakened mind, that wisdom potential in us. And there can be, I don't know if this is at all part of your question, but it's some of my experience. I did think that if I meditated long enough, I would forgive everyone forever. And I would come to a state of total acceptance of everything all of the time, and that my mind would stop being an asshole. I did. I, I really thought like, if I meditate for long enough, then there'll be this sort of internal perfection. <laughs> and maybe that's true for some people. It's not true for me at all. And I don't think it was true for the enlightened Buddha. I don't think it's what enlightenment is. And I, I, I find it helpful to remember that and to hopefully it's helpful for you to be reminded that even the fully, you know, he said, I'm fully enlightened. I have compassion all of the time. I'm non-attached. I'm loving. I'm, you know, he said, this is enlightenment. Nirvana has been experienced. And he said, but my mind keeps attacking me. The, you know, it, that it's keep Mara, keep, Mara keeps coming back. So the difference is I used to believe it. I used to suffer about it. Now, when Mara comes, he says to the, he says to Mara, that part of the mind, he says, I see you. Oh, I see ignorance arising in my mind, giving me bad advice saying you should suffer about this, or you should take that personal, or you should, you know, don't take that shit from them or whatever it says. And he just says, I see you. Oh, ignorance is here. Hello, ignorance. Hello, Mara. Hello, confusion. Hello, terrible advice from my own brain in order to get there and this is i think part of what's happening from for you and what the question is coming from is you have to break your addiction to and our identification with the mind i don't know where you're at in your path but most people i think walk around believing their own thoughts pretty much all of the time pretty I convinced that what we're thinking is true and reliable. 
the more you meditate, the more you see, oh, so many of my thoughts are not true and not reliable. And even though they're becoming wiser and I'm seeing more clearly, still there's Mara is still here. Mara still raises, you know, the kind of checks in and says, you know, you sure? Hookers and cocaine, you sure? <laughs> no, not you, okay. Too much? Whatever the, your mind says, whatever your mind says, that's just like, yeah, no, absolutely not. Bad idea. It's the same mind. It's the human condition. And they coexist. And I don't think that ignorance completely goes away. But the more wisdom we have, the more we learn to see it. Oh, ignorance is visiting. Hello, Mara, I see you. Ignorant thoughts are here. Self-centered, fear-based, clinging. Big surprise. But we get that ability to see it and make the right choice, respond. Hope that's helpful. Andy at home, go ahead, jump in. I know uh, Colorado, wherever you are. <laughs> Colorado now, yeah. Hey, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, craving pleasure, hating pain, and the nuances related to that. And here's what I mean when I say that. Um, I can understand wanting a physical sensation to be pleasurable and not liking a negative, you know, physical sensation. When it gets to the emotional piece of the puzzle, you know, we want to experience emotions that we feel pleasant. And when we feel unpleasant moment, emotions, we want them to go away. And we suffer when they don't, right? Um, and sometimes we want not so much good nor bad, just ease. And when we don't feel at ease, we feel a version of pain. So I thought maybe you could just talk a little bit more about like the the nuances and the kind of subtle varieties of you know the 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 layers to pleasure and play, pain. Um, yeah, I mean I don't know how good I am at subtlety. <laughs> um, You know, one of the ways, one of the things that you said in the question caught my attention, which was when we want an unpleasant emotion to go away and it doesn't. Um, and the more we pay attention, the, the reality is, and the kind of scientific uh, data agrees that actually all emotions go away, they're impermanent. And if you're mindful, you see, I, I read something not that long ago that said the longest an emotion can last is only like, at, or can peak is only like 90 seconds. Like the longest possible you can be at the peak of your anger or your fear or your sadness is for like 90 seconds before it starts to dissipate. And so... I don't, it doesn't feel like that though, right? Sometimes you feel like I'm angry all day. <laughs> I'm fucking sad for weeks or I'm, 
but the more you're mindful, you'll start to see, oh no, this is peaking and it's diminishing and then it's repeating, it's repetitive. The problem is impermanence is such good news when it comes to unpleasantness, whether it's physically or emotionally or, um, but the problem that coexists with impermanence is the repetitive nature of our craving, of our clinging and of our emotions. And it's not like you just get angry and then it's, oh, it's impermanent anger. Yeah, it's impermanent, it will dissipate and then the thought will repeat and the angle will re-arise. And then the thought passes and the anger dissipates and then it repeats and I'm pissed off again. And now I'm pissed off in a different way because I didn't even think about that aspect of, you know, now I'm thinking about that. and you know, oh, and then that's dissipating, it's impermanent. And, uh, you know, and then your mind says, but remember, and then, you know, it's just this repetitive cycle of difficult emotion. So it's like, yeah, they're impermanent and they, maybe it's 90 seconds or less, but then it comes back and then it comes back, then it comes back. So some of it's tolerance. I, I think that and you know this, Andy, you know, the Buddhist frame, uh, a lot of it is um, reframing our idea of happiness and ease and well-being to include unpleasant emotions. Rather than, you know, I think we, most of us, we come to meditation, the Dharma, recovery, whatever it is for you, uh, with an idea that I can only be happy when I'm having pleasant experiences. The Dharma teaches us, and even that whole thing I was just talking about with Mara, the Buddha's enlightenment included this unpleasant aspect of his mind. Even fully liberate, even full liberation isn't gonna get rid of unpleasantness. The Buddha also talked about all of the physical pain that he had, especially later in his life. He was a basic, he was uh, experiencing chronic pain. He said, I don't, I'm never free from physical pain in his late and later in his life. Said, I'm always in pain. I'm not suffering about it, but I'm always in pain. I have this back injury. I have this, his foot got smashed in a uh, um, uh, murder attempt. He, you know, had all this drama in the community. His cousin was trying to kill him to take the power and the sangha. Uh, he said, I'm not suffering about any of it, but it's all quite unpleasant. Physically, I'm in pain all of the time. Mara keeps fucking telling me I should kick my cousin's ass. I'm not gonna do that because I've, I don't, I know that's not the solution, but it doesn't stop Mara from giving me bad advice. So I'm not sure if this is helpful or not, but it is just that reframe of of course, what we're doing is, you know, it's so radical to say, I'm going to learn to be happy, at ease, content in the midst of the difficulties, and that we're not on a spiritual path that's going to take us to bliss and joy and only comfort and all of the time. It just doesn't exist. There's a lot of traditions that will sell you bliss. You can go to a sound bath down the street if you want to get blissed out. It's not what the Dharma is. It's not what the Buddha teaches. I don't, you know, I'm talking a little bit of shit because of course, you know, joy is 
present and happiness is available. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a sound bath. You want to relax and have a cool experience? Go do it. Pleasant. It's not liberation. You don't want to become dependent on those kind of pleasant meditations. You want to learn to meditate with your knees hurting, with your mind loud, with the difficult emotions, and come to understand this is my practice, learning to be sad, learning to be angry, learning to be lonely, learning to have resentments and watch the mind resenting, judging, fearing, whatever it's doing, meeting it with as much compassion as we can, as much forgiveness as we can, the antidotes, we don't want to wallow in the suffering, but difficult emotions are unavoidable. This is why the Buddha said, this path to liberation goes completely against the stream, against the natural human craving for life and then for spiritual and religious experience to lead to, that's why they created heaven. Humans created this idea of like, yeah, life is difficult, but afterwards it's all pleasant. And most of the planet bought that bullshit. Most of the planet has bought into this, like, but in the afterlife, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> it's really good when you're dead. Because of that human craving for comfort and pleasure, where the Buddha is like, I'm not going to trick people into that bullshit. You can learn to not suffer in the midst of your pain. And the truth that this human condition is rife with all kinds of unpleasant emotions and sensations. And it's why in the instructions every week, just about every week, I ask you, the Buddha asks us to turn towards not just what's happening, but how does it feel? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? And not just in the physical sensations, but in the emotions and in the thoughts. Because the only hope for freedom is learning to be uncomfortable physically, emotionally. That's the Buddhist freedom, freedom from suffering about what's happening. Not freedom to be comfortable all of the time, not freedom to do whatever you want and get away with it. Freedom from suffering about what's happening, learning to respond appropriately, wisely. I don't know, I, I don't, maybe didn't speak to the subtleties you were looking for, but it's what I got. It was great. Thank you. Uh, there was a hand in the back before. Do you still have it? Yeah, please. Um, I'm going to make a t-shirt with the cross on it. It's good when you're dead. <laughs> so good. Death is the best. Heaven. <laughs> One of the gems that I got. One that's resonating the most for me that I got from you and from Jason, you know, from here is this idea that the mind is important. That was like a real sort of revelation for me, the way to think about it, you know. Um, and then today you said that get to know your mind the way you know your breath, right? And that's another sort of bringing it out of being a personal thing into like this object, you know. And I've noticed in my meditation that. Um, I've gotten pretty good at, you know, focusing on the breath and you kind of do your meditation in like three parts. It's the breath and then you open it up and then, you know, you do something else. 
I've noticed that um, when it comes time to quiet the mind, that I was struggling with that, like of suppressing it and not letting a loud mind be loud or whatever. But recently, I've noticed that I'm not really thinking anything, but it's almost like I have a stack of, like a burlap sack full of restless snakes <laughs> in kind of where my mind, where I picture my mind. And it's kind of throbbing and moving. And I'm, at first, I was like, see, you're repressing your thoughts. And I'm, then I was like, no, this is just like your heart beating or your lungs filling. This is your mind thinking. You're just not engaging with it, you know? And I just love that, that idea that, you know, there's a way of thinking of the mind that it's an entity, it's an organ, you know, it's a thinking organ. I just think that's so simple, but so revolutionary. I don't know if I can repeat or paraphrase that for the people at home, but I don't know if I heard that somewhere or it just occurred to me. Maybe I heard it somewhere, um, but I find it very helpful also to, to try to relate to the mind or to see how I don't take the breath so personally. I know that my body's just breathing all by itself and that it's not me. It's just an organ. The heart's an organ beating, the intestines, the, you know, we have all of these organs that are doing their job. And we don't sit around taking them so personal, but our brain, we take so personally. And we, uh, especially when we have to come to meditation with this idea of like, there's some meditation that I'm going to do that's going to just shut it off. I'm going to quiet it. I'm going to still it. I'm going to, you know, thank God we don't have that idea of like, I'm going to meditate so good. I'm going to stop my lungs from doing their job. <laughs> A really good meditation. It's when you quiet your breathing all the way. <laughs> and then you get to go to heaven and it's good. But we do, we have this idea of peace is making the brain Stop doing what the brain does. Stop it from thinking. Stop it from having emotions. Stop it from... And it comes from the truth that in some deeply concentrated meditation states, you lose all awareness of your mind and it becomes totally tranquil and still. And, you know, and in advanced stages of meditation, the mind becomes an ally and starts giving you good, loving advice and isn't filled with so many defilements. It becomes more, but even in that state, the enlightened Buddha's state, still there's some defilements. There's still Mara, right? So it's not perfectly my perspective. There's a lot of Buddhists that would argue with me about this perspective, but fuck them <laughs> with loving kindness. They're totally wrong. I mean, I don't know, but it is, it is the perspective that I hold and um i love that insight that you are sharing about just accepting that that's what the mind does i don't know if you could hear it at home but he said he said sometimes when i'm meditating it's like there's this burlap sack and there's a bunch of snakes in it and uh you know and at some point in meditation just being like i'm just gonna accept that that's just the brain firing and that's just what the brain does there's all of these fucking wiggly thoughts up there in my brain 
and I don't need it to go away. I don't need it to stop. I don't need to, you know, because I even found myself going like, well, what would happen if you opened the sack and let the <laughs> let the snake slither away? Like, and maybe you can play with that, but also I like your insight, which is just like, yeah, it's what it feels like. Right now, it feels like my brain is a bag of snakes. And I don't need to do anything about it. And I don't need to change it. I just need to be aware of it and accept it. Right now, it's like this. At home, Dustin, go ahead. Hey, Noah, can you hear me? What's happening in Arizona? It's fucking hot, dude. I bet. It's really hot. Um, but I'll be in there. I'll be in LA this weekend. So get a get a little reprieve. Um two-part question here. So um the 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 first part of it is so all, all the spiritual practices and knowledge that I've ever gained in my life, like when I was a kid, it was Bible study, right? And then when I was in recovery, it was, you know, also Bible study. Fucking a, dude. Um, but getting getting thumped over the head with a big book, you know, um, and and having someone go over the big book with me, and you know, understanding the history and everything, and then I share it with another human being. And um, so I I have had a meditation practice, but now I'm trying to learn more history, you know, um, more of more of the teachings behind it. And you know, so now like there's the the precepts and you know, the, the eightfold path and um, the four foundations, and it's all just very dense. So I don't really know where to start um, as, as far as learning this, whether it's recommended literature or um, I just I just don't know how to proceed. And the second part of the question, which I think kind of loops into it, um, the only Sangha that I know is out there in LA. How can I find community here? Because I feel like when I do find community, it will help with that first part. Um, you know, it's, I, I look up like, you know, they, they have temples on like Sunday and like, I don't know what to fucking wear. So like, I, I'm like, I don't know what to wear. Can I show my tattoos? So there's like all these blocks from getting me to like, I, I just don't know where to begin. Um, so looking forward to, to being there this weekend though. And um, any recommendations, whether it be literature or how to find a community, would be uh, extremely helpful. Um, do you have against the stream? I do. I have against the stream in and the back, part of the revolution. In the back of against the stream, there's recommended reading. Awesome. And so I would check out those books that I recommended there. And the book, I think the first book that I recommend and I often recommend to people who want to know more about kind of the history of Buddhism and because it's not only all of those lists that you mentioned, but also like what is Zen versus what is Vipassana versus what is Tibetan Buddhism and what's the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and the, you get interested in Buddhism and then there's like you know, it's like, well, what are, who are the Lutherans and the Baptists and the fucking Latter-day Saints? You know, <laughs> like it's the same thing in Buddhism as, you know, we fucked it up as bad as the Christians did. 
with creating all of these different traditions and everybody's like, but we have the right, you know, we got the direct path to the Buddha or some of the Buddhists who are like, you know, we know even better than the Buddha. He was like this low level teacher, but you know, we've got these higher teachers and it's a mess and it's all called Buddhism. That book, uh, Buddhism, a concise introduction from Houston Smith and Philip Novak is one of the few less biased, you know, because then the problem is you listen to me, I'm biased as shit. I think that, you know, my perspectives are the right ones. Every teacher is going to have that bias. These two teachers from different traditions came together and they wrote this book, Concise Introduction to Buddhism. And I think that they did a good job of, of really historically looking at who was Siddhartha Gautama? What was the cultural context that Buddhism arose in 2,600 years ago in, in India? Uh, and, then, and then also, you know, what did the Buddha teach? They, I took from that book, um, they called the Buddha the rebel saint. And I loved that, you know, like that he was this rebellious, you know, going against the cultural and societal and religious norms of his time rather than promising, you know, heaven. He said, no, you gotta learn how to deal with your pain. You know, you wanna get free from suffering? Learn how to deal with your pain. Learn how to meet it. Um, so that book, Buddhism Concise Introduction. Do you remember learning how to drive? Remember how complicated it seemed? I don't know. I mean, some, most of us, some of us are old enough to have learned how to drive on stick shifts. Uh, maybe a lot of people learn on a um, automatic. It's not that, but you know, just that sort of like, I got to have, you know, hands at 10 and two, and there's a mirror over here and there's a mirror over, and there's a rear view mirror. And I'm supposed to look over my shoulder and, and, you know, like you're learning how to drive. And you're like, this is fucking a little bit complicated. Now you know how to do it. And you're just like simple driving a car, no big deal. I went scuba diving this weekend and last weekend, getting my certification. Same sort of thing of like, oh, there's a lot to learn and like in all of these skills we have to practice and, you know, blowing your nose out to equalize and the breather and the tank and this tube and that tube and these hand signals. And it's like all this shit to learn because I don't know it yet. But then once you learn it and you're doing it, you know how to drive, you know how to scuba dive, you know how to let the clutch out on your motorcycle, whatever, all of those things that in the beginning feel complicated after a while you're like oh i this is just the dharma is the same way there's the, you know it seems like there's a lot of lists but all of the lists are connected and after a couple of years of reading and reflecting and meditating on it you see like oh yeah the fourth the four noble truths make so much sense there's suffering there's a cause there's a way to end suffering there's this eightfold path and come to understand, to have wise intentions, actions, speech, livelihood. Pretty soon it's just like, oh yeah, checking the rear view mirror, practicing mindfulness. Oh, four foundations of mindfulness, 32 parts, of, right? Like saying it's like, it's a lot, but once you learn it, you've, you know, and you're somebody who's practicing and studying, within a couple of years, you'd be like, you know, I get it. It's just like, now I know how to drive. Now I, I, I get the Dharma intellectually. I know what the lists mean. At some point, the teachings on some level aren't as important as the meditation practice. The experience that we develop in our meditation practice and the importance of going on retreats and deepening our understanding of some of the, the most 
profound parts of Buddhism are the simplest parts that I say over and over all of the time, like the truth of impermanence. You've heard me, I, I, I say this a lot. My teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, he said, and he's like one of the highest teachers in our Theravadan forest tradition. He said, the, maybe it can be boiled down to simply the whole Dharma boiled down to two words. And I said it tonight, let go. Our whole meditation practice, all of the Dharma, all of the four of these and the five of these and the 12 links of that and the you know, subtle mind states of just let go of what you're clinging to and you will stop suffering. Let go of resisting what's happening that you don't like and you'll stop suffering. It's quite simple. And then we've complicated it. Maybe the Buddha complicated it by having to be precise about, well, there's you know, 12 links of dependent causal origination in every single moment and every you know, mind moment and every sense door and every sense door has three feeling tones. And he explained it in this really precise way, but the solution, let go of needing it to be different than it is in this moment and you won't suffer acceptance right kind of the whole dharma in some level is acceptance and compassion meeting the pain with compassion and not being so identified with our thoughts as self well, anyways um another one in the room please um zen master sung san said his teachings and sutras are a great way of drawing a picture of a banana but you have to actually eat the banana um i just thought that was a uh, nice way of phrasing it absolutely yeah eat um, it <laughs> probably where since the very beginning of my engagement with meditation practice like I just get really, really curious and I want to know things. I'm like, what is this thing that is aware? I want to know. And then I just keep getting into all these tangents and rabbit holes and all these things. And want to feel, part of me is I want to feel like I'm going forward somewhere. And I know kind of this little voice in my head is like, hey, you're kind of going in circles. Um, but do you have any advice on how to like, kind of like go of all that, but still kind of utilize that energy to, you know, motivate practice yeah i mean that's where my mind went was the way that you answered the you know asked and answered is how to use that curiosity to deepen insight and to see when is it the right question someone said to me once um rarely is why the right question but often um what is the wise response or how can i learn directly from this because that why can be such a black hole you know just such a not really onward leading but rather than why is it like this how can i learn from this or what is the wise response to this experience um, and i think it's a little bit like the last question the, the dharma itself can give that intellectual, I want to have knowledge, I want to understand it all, um, a real target. I'm going to become a scholar. I'm going to understand, you know, the Tibetan tradition and the Japanese tradition and the Theravadan tradition and, and fill our head with 
information. And I'm somebody who's, you know, I like to read the books and I find it all interesting to know the difference between the traditions. And um, I like to, I want to know why on some levels too. But I found it so much more useful to try to use that curiosity in a practical meditative, what's the wise response to this moment? And knowing that, knowing the answers isn't enough. And maybe you're already there. I know I've been there a lot in my life where I know what the right thing to do is, but I don't quite have the ability to do it. I know that my mind's giving me bad advice and I'm taking it anyways. I know that it's not the right thing to do, but I'm still being reactive. I think it was Ajahn Chah that said he thinks, you know, most, most of us, you know, even in advanced, uh, maybe some large percentage of the time know what the Dharma answer is, but don't have the ability yet to fully embody it. We know we need to let go, but we're still clinging. There's that part of the mind that knows let go. And there's that other part that's often more pervasive that says, ah, keep asking why. More interesting. So I don't know exactly, I don't have a, a good trick, but I think it's the right question for you and for all of us. How can I use this curiosity and my intelligence to, uh, the, and this uh, ability to intellectualize and reflect and analyze? And how can I use it to lead to liberation, to get more free? The mind is training itself. And so some of uh, you know, the four foundations are giving us these really good habits of investigation, uh, analysis, observation, turning the attention towards our own minds, we're training the mind with the mind. Not by thinking, it's, you know, it's eating the banana, the meditation is eating the banana. But also some meditations, I talked about this, I think three weeks ago, where I think there's like maybe three kinds and stages of meditation. Sometimes we're using meditation to avoid to ignore. And even the instructions that I give the first 10 minutes tonight, I said, you know, ignore your mind, pay attention to your breath. Now, a lot of people get stuck in that their whole meditation career, ignore your mind, pay attention to your breath. And it's all they're doing forever. <laughs> and it gives you some relief, but also you're just learning to be really good at ignoring. And it doesn't actually develop wisdom. It doesn't actually develop compassion because you're just ignoring the causes of suffering. And then the second phase, which is really training the mind, forgiveness, loving kindness, compassion, inclining the mind towards investigating the feeling tone and responding with compassion to the pain, investigating the feeling tone, responding with non-attachment to the pleasure, letting go. Uh, John Semedo, a teacher that I like, he said um, early in his, he's a monk, he said uh, early in, the, in his practice, he said, for about two years, all I did every day when I meditated was say in my mind, let go. That was my whole meditation practice for about two years. Let go, let go, 
let go. <laughs> Just over and over, it became a mantra of focus, let go. Because he saw, I'm so attached. I'm suffering because I'm so attached. Let go. So anyways, ignoring, training, and then that kind of open, spacious observation where you're not trying to manipulate or uh, respond and you're just being with the bag of snakes just bag of snakes you're allowed to exist i don't need to cover you with compassion or forgiveness and i don't need to shut you up you're allowed to exist it's just the brain being an organ doing what it does it thinks the trained mind is a much uh more trustworthy or interesting or even pleasant thing to observe than the untrained mind and so those first stages of training your mind through the breath awareness and through the four foundations of mindfulness and the brahma viharas are key preliminary stages to getting to the place where you can be non-interfering in your meditation practice because your mind has some wisdom and some loving kindness in it. Okay, I ran out of time. It's nine o'clock. Sorry, Sam, I don't have time for your question, but maybe next week. Um, day long on Sunday, this coming Sunday, day long meditation retreat here, 9am to 4pm. If you want to do it at home, you can get a zoom link and we'll do this hybrid in person zoom day of meditation. We'll do sitting meditation, we'll do walking meditation, we'll do some more sitting meditation, some more walking meditation. I'll take a break for lunch, then we'll do some more sitting meditation, some more walking meditation, you spend the day practicing training your mind, training your heart. I'm sure I'll do some loving kindness and as well as some mindfulness. So We'll see what happens, but join me. Come on Sunday, next Sunday, um, sign up. Uh, the link is on online on the againstthestream.com website. You, um, or just show up if you wanna just show up. If you wanna do it online, you need to get the link. So you gotta sign up. Anybody that can't afford it, it's $65 uh, charge for the day. All of that money just goes to support the meditation center. I don't receive any of it. I teach for Donna, just like I do on Monday nights, which is donation, um, generosity. If you can't afford the $65 fee for the day long and want to join us, you're welcome to join us. You can pay whatever you can afford. Uh, no one turned away for lack of ability to uh, pay for these kind of things. So just let me know if you want to come, just show up. If you need a link and you can't afford it, shoot us an email and we'll hook you up. That's how we do it. Um, that's it. Class is done by donation. Please be generous. Link uh, for donations is in the chat online. Uh, Tara, our lovely volunteer who helps out every Monday. I often forget to thank you, but thank you for helping out. Uh, at the front desk and um, thanks to Emily and Jeff for hosting the Zoom, co-hosting the Zoom. Many goodness that comes from our practice tonight, discussion of the Buddha's Dharma be shared with each other and shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May all of us come to as much freedom as we can in this lifetime. 
And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Again, welcome to everybody that was new. Welcome back to everybody else and uh, see you next week. Maybe, maybe not. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.